I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is the podcast where I pick a famous day in history and then dig through old newspapers to tell you what else was being reported on the exact same day. I look for stories you probably haven't heard or have completely forgotten about. Last week's famous date took place clear back in 1871. This week, I'm going to jump forward 126 years to a date that happened just 24 years ago. Because this date is more recent history, many of you listening will remember when it happened. I definitely do. It was shocking and alarming and, well, crazy. Today's famous newspaper date is March 27th, 1997, and I'm taking a headline from the Los Angeles Times. It says, 39 dead in apparent suicide. Bodies found in Rancho Santa Fe Mansion. Friends, March 27th, 1997 was the day newspapers broke the news of the Heaven's Gate cult suicide. Now, when the Los Angeles Times first reported about the suicides, the information coming from the scene was brand new, which means not all of it was correct. The paper reported that 39 bodies had been found in a mansion in the upscale Rancho Santa Fe area. The people had all been members of a religious organization called WW Hire. They didn't believe in smoking or drinking, and they died during some sort of ritual of celebration during Holy Week. All 39 deceased members were young men. Now, at the time this article was written, authorities hadn't even finished searching all of the property yet. It included tennis courts, a sauna, a putting green, an elevator, not to mention the giant house. And it consisted of three acres of land. Police warned that the body count could rise. Of course, as the investigation continued and more time passed, the world learned more about the group suicide. The group was more commonly known as Heaven's Gate, and they were usually referred to as a cult. It also came out that the deceased were actually men and women, ranging in age from 26 to 72, so not all of them were young men. 21 were women, and 18 were men. They all dressed alike and even had the same crew haircut, which is probably what led the first reporter to print that all of the bodies were male. The group was started by Marshall Applewhite, a former music professor, and Bonnie Nettles back in the 1970s. They believed that their bodies were just vehicles that could be abandoned in favor of a higher physical existence, and they taught that an alien spacecraft was going to come down, pick them up, and take them to the kingdom of heaven. They recruited more and more members to join with them, and some stayed permanently, and others stayed just for a while and then returned to their own families. Marshall and Bonnie made multiple predictions about when they would be taken up into the spacecraft, but each time the day would pass and they'd find out they were wrong. This didn't help with member retention, I'm sure. But then in 1985, one of the group's founders... Bonnie Nettles, passed away. 
Marshall Applewhite kept it going, and for those who stayed in the cult, they moved their group into a home in California that they filled with computers so they could work as web page designers during the big internet boom of the late 1990s. Then in 1995, everything changed for the cult. You see, that's when the Hale-Bopp comet was discovered in space. The group was convinced that there was an alien spaceship hiding behind the comet so that it couldn't be detected by humans. That spaceship was coming to pick them up. They knew that when the comet was at its closest point to Earth, they would need to leave their bodies behind so they could fly up and get aboard the spaceship. Marshall Applewhite and some other members made videos explaining what they were about to do and why. Then they ate applesauce or pudding mixed with a lethal amount of phenobarbital and vodka and laid down on bunk beds set up all over the home. They wore matching black sweatpants and black shirts with patches that said, Heaven's Gate Awaiting. They all wore brand new Nike shoes. Each person covered their head and upper body with a purple shroud, and then they fell asleep. Permanently. It was a very eerie sight for the former cult member who found them. Now, for those who remember this story from 1997, you'll know that there is so much more to the story than I just told you. But remember, this podcast isn't about the famous events. It's about what else was happening around the country and world on the exact same day. So I'm going to look through some more newspapers and see what else I can find. For my first additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline from the Enterprise Toxin out of Indianola, Mississippi. It says, Authorities investigate brutal slaying in Isola. Yes, friends, it's another murder mystery. Sadly, when I'm reading through old newspapers, the big stories being told each day are usually about murder and other types of crime. It's a rare day that I don't read about multiple murder cases before choosing my three additional history stories. At first glance, as awful as it is to say, this particular murder seemed like a run-of-the-mill murder that wouldn't have much to write about. But, as I continued to read about it, I realized I'd found a story that was much bigger than I'd initially thought. A couple of days before this newspaper was printed, Kathy Mabry disappeared from her home in the small town of Isola, Mississippi. Isola is a poor town in a poor county in the poorest state in the country. Many of those who live there work in the cotton industry or catfish industry. The latter was the case with Kathy Mabry. The 39-year-old single mother worked in a nearby catfish factory. She graduated from high school and started college. But unfortunately, she started experimenting with drugs and became addicted. Her schooling ended, but she continued to try to fight her addiction, sometimes doing good and sometimes not so good. At one point, she got married and had two sons, but her addiction caught up with her and her marriage ended. Kathy and her sons moved back home to live with Kathy's mother. Kathy would sometimes have boyfriends, but many of them were abusive to her. One of those boyfriends was James Earl Gates. Kathy's mother said Gates treated the home like his own and would boss everyone around, even her. He was sometimes abusive to Kathy, and neither of them, being small women, dared to stand up to him. The day Kathy disappeared, she made dinner for her boys and then said she had to leave for a bit. 
but she didn't give any specifics on where she was going. It was a Saturday, and when Kathy didn't come home that night and she didn't show up the next morning, her mother started to worry a little bit. She knew her daughter sometimes met up with drug dealers, but she figured Kathy was with her boyfriend, James Earl Gates, and eventually she'd show up again. Monday morning came, and Kathy's mother still hadn't heard from her. She didn't show up for her shift at the catfish factory either. The last straw was when James Earl Gates called, wondering where Kathy was and why he couldn't get a hold of her. Kathy's mother didn't waste any more time before calling the police. Early the next morning, a man who worked as a truck driver stopped to check on his house. A few months before, he'd moved in with his girlfriend, but still kept his home, and it was sitting there empty. It had already been burglarized multiple times, and on more than one occasion, he'd had to kick out squatters who were using his house to do drugs. That morning, he noticed there was some new damage to the carport. He decided to investigate. By the front door, he found drops of blood, and he followed the trail of blood into the house. Sadly, that's when he discovered the body of Kathy Mabry. She had been brutally murdered, and her face and neck had been slashed repeatedly with a razor blade. Murder wasn't a common occurrence in that little town, and especially not murders of that caliber. Despite his seemingly genuine sadness over the loss of his girlfriend, it wasn't a surprise that James Earl Gates quickly became one of the investigator's number one suspects. Then when the team called in two Mississippi men who at the time were thought of as experts in their fields, the investigators thought they had their man. Those experts were Stephen Hayne, a man who claimed to perform well over a thousand autopsies every year. The other man, Michael West, was a dentist that claimed to have developed a system that could match a bite mark on a victim to the person who did the biting. The two men would often collaborate and then testify in court together. In the case of Kathy Mabry, Hayne performed the autopsy, called in West to examine a potential bite mark, and then West went around to the police's top suspects and got plaster molds of their mouths. One by one, he eliminated the suspects, until he got to James Earl Gates. He announced that the cops had their man. Gates was arrested, tried, and convicted, and the case was considered closed. But... Allegations started to come out that Hayne and West weren't as expert as they claimed to be. Remember all those autopsies Hayne would do every year? Well over a thousand? Well, according to the National Association of Medical Examiners, a person shouldn't perform more than 325 a year, max. Some of Hayne's autopsy report were known to be questionable. Like the time he put in a report that he removed someone's uterus and ovaries during the autopsy. The person being autopsied was a man. Or the time he wrote in his report that he removed and weighed a man's spleen, even though the man had had his spleen removed years earlier. And then there was West, the expert dentist. He claimed he was the only one in the world that could do the tests on bite marks, using equipment he developed. That meant there was no way to prove or disprove what he said. Gates continued to claim that he was innocent and had nothing to do with Kathy's death. 1997 DNA technology wasn't as good as it is now, but it was a lot better than it was in the years before that. 
Many months after Gates was arrested, the scrapings from underneath Kathy's fingernails were sent to a crime lab. They didn't have the technology to make a DNA match, but they could prove who didn't do it. And guess what? Gates wasn't a match. He'd spent almost an entire year in prison, claiming to be innocent, but because of questionable dental forensics practices, he was thought to be guilty. While it was a good thing that the innocent James Earl Gates gained his freedom, it still left the question of who killed Kathy Mabry. When DNA technology advanced and progressed even more, the information was uploaded to the CODIS database and it came back with a match. Kathy Mabry was raped and murdered by a man named Michael Johnson. The reason Michael Johnson's DNA was already in the database was because he was already serving time in prison for beating a man to death five years after Kathy's murder. Since Kathy's murder wasn't the only one where Stephen Hayne and Michael West were involved in putting someone behind bars, other cases have been and are being reopened. Multiple other men have had DNA evidence prove they weren't the perpetrator. And many older cases are still being worked on today in 2021. Although her murder was a horrible, awful tragedy, I'm glad that Kathy Mabry's real killer was eventually found. For my second additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline from the Daily Journal out of Flat River, Missouri. The headline says, Doctor Charged with Murdering Patient. Now, at first glance, I thought I could guess what the article would be about, but I was way off. It turns out that the story is about a subject that was very much front and center in the news in the mid to late 90s, especially with another doctor. I'll compare that situation to this one in a minute. But first, let me tell you the story that this article tells. This story is about 36-year-old Dr. Ernesto Pinzon. Dr. Pinzon worked in Sebring, Florida. And this is also the story of Rosario Guerreri. Rosario had put in many long workdays over his life, and at 70 years old, the retired bank guard had many aches and pains. He struggled to get relief from his pain that was at times unbearable. He went to a doctor and found out that the aches and pains weren't just signs of growing older. Nope. Rosario had lung cancer. The doctor that diagnosed him with cancer saw how advanced the disease was and told Rosario and his family that he had just weeks to live. I'm sure they were devastated. On October 6, 1996, just two weeks after that diagnosis, Rosario was hospitalized and his pain was more than he could deal with. He begged his nurses and his family to help him find some sort of relief preferably in the form of stronger pain medication because whatever he had already wasn't working and he couldn't take it much longer. Dr. Pinzon was the doctor that was on call that day. One of the nurses called him at home and asked the doctor what they could do for Rosario. Dr. Pinzon told the nurse to give him a large dose of morphine. Now, I'm not sure if the dose was an unheard of amount or exactly what the situation was because I'm not a doctor, but the nurse told Dr. Pinzone that she was going to refuse to follow his order on the morphine. So Dr. Pinzone drove to the hospital and administered the morphine along with a dose of Valium to Rosario himself. Rosario's family had all gathered in the room and while they were all there watching, he also gave Rosario an injection of 
potassium chloride. Again, I'm not a doctor, but according to the articles and the information that came out during Dr. Pinson's trial, potassium chloride is a drug that is sometimes used for executions. As Rosario's family watched, the man slipped away and was pronounced dead just an hour after the injection. Fast forward a couple more weeks, and Dr. Pinson is charged with first-degree murder after a nursing supervisor filed a complaint saying that there had been no reason for him to give Rosario the potassium chloride. The hospital administrators called the police, and his license was immediately revoked. The grand jury accused him of, quote, willful, premeditated, and unjustified murder. In Florida at the time, the first-degree murder charge came with a punishment of life in prison or the electric chair. Right away, people started comparing Dr. Pinson's case to other doctors that were in the news at the time. The Supreme Court was trying to decide about doctor-assisted suicides, and a certain man, Dr. Jack Kevorkian, had been making headlines for years for his role in doctor-assisted suicides. Even though the media started making connections between the cases, Dr. Pinson's team and even the prosecutors tried to separate themselves from the debate right away. You see, there was a big difference between Dr. Pinson and some of the other doctors in favor of the assistants. Dr. Pinson didn't try to kill Rosario. He didn't give him the potassium chloride with the intention of killing the man, despite what the charges said. Dr. Pinson could tell that Rosario wasn't going to make it much longer. Not only was he in the final stages of lung cancer, but he also had heart disease and was going into respiratory failure. Dr. Pinson said he gave Rosario the potassium chloride to slow his heartbeat so that his final moments of life would be more bearable. Rosario's primary care physician, Dr. Fabio Oliveros, stuck by his medical partner, saying that he thought Pinson made a caring decision. Many, many people in the town of Sebring were on Dr. Pinson's side of the argument and threw their support behind him. They organized fundraisers to help pay for his defense, and at his court hearings, Doctors, nurses, and patients, all wearing purple ribbons, filled the courtroom to show support for him. But not everyone was on Dr. Pinson's side. Many doctors said that he showed a lack of competence by not administering other drugs to ease the pain instead. The debate went back and forth and back and forth, and finally, in June of 1997, the trial ended. The jury deliberated for five hours, and a verdict was reached. Dr. Ernesto Pinzon was found innocent. He was acquitted of murdering Rosario Guerreri and allowed to return to practicing medicine. For today's third and final additional history story from March 27, 1997, I'm going to actually share two articles from the same newspaper because both of them talked about a similar subject, sort of. The first article comes from the Daily News out of New York City. The headline says, Strap Hangers Peer into Future. The day before, the Transit Authority in New York had invited the public to come look at a newly designed subway car, a prototype of what they hoped all subway cars would look like soon. They called it the car of the future, and according to the article, people came out in droves to see it. Doctors, social workers, college students, retirees, entire families, and even train enthusiasts walked through the new car. 
The car had hard plastic seats with contoured backs instead of bench seats, and instead of straps hanging down, there were poles attached to the ceiling of the car for people to hold on to. The open house to look at the car lasted for four hours, and New Yorkers didn't let the transit authority down. They argued and debated over their preferences with anyone who would listen. Some liked the older-style bench seats and thought the newer seats were uncomfortable. Others thought the opposite. Some thought the metal poles to hold on to should be in the middle of the car so short people could reach them, while others liked them out of the way so wheelchairs could have an easier time getting on and off the subway. The Transit Authority was going to be awarding a $2 billion contract to build 740 new cars sometime during the next month. Now, for anyone who has ever ridden a subway or train in any city, you know that there are people of all shapes, sizes, and backgrounds on them. And sometimes people who maybe aren't the best society has to offer take a ride. Which brings us to the second article about the subway in the Daily News. This headline says, Man's face slashed by teen on Q train. The same day New Yorkers were getting a sneak peek at their possible new subway car, a 54-year-old man named Stuart Shaddles was having probably one of the worst days of his life. He was sitting near the doorway of a northbound Q train when someone only described as a male youth got onto the train. The youth decided to stand in the doorway right next to where Stuart was sitting, and at one point, the youth put his arm up and brushed against Stuart's head. Stuart replied, Excuse me. Apparently, that was enough to make the youth very angry, because when the train pulled into the next station a few minutes later, he pulled out a razor or box cutter or something like that and slashed Stuart Shaddles across the face without even saying a word. Then, the teen jumped off the subway and ran. A witness to the incident jumped off the train and tried to follow him, but he lost him in the crowd, so he stopped to call 911 instead. Stewart was taken to the hospital, and it took 23 stitches to close the wound on his face. I'm glad I've only had normal, boring even, trips on subways and trains. Unless you count the time my then 15-year-old son got blocked by an elderly lady as he tried to get off the train with me in Amsterdam and ended up seeing more of the city than he or I intended. But that's a story for another day. For today's advertisement, I'm going to cheat a little bit. Instead of picking an actual advertisement, I'm picking an article that has to do with selling stuff. I found this article in the March 27, 1997 issue of the South Bend Tribune out of Indiana. The headline says, Walmart to expand internet shopping. According to the article, Walmart, which was and still is the world's biggest retailer, had decided to start selling more items in their online store. The retail giant had only been open for internet business for around eight or nine months at this point, and they'd opened with just 2,500 items. I remember when my family got the internet, and it was either 96 or 97, so right around this time. Some of my friends had it before my family, and some didn't. Little did we all know just how big the internet thing would become, and how big of a role it would play in everyone's lives around the world. Anyway, at the time, Walmart hoped to offer at least 80,000 items in their online store by the end of the year. Anyone who has ever visited their website or searched for anything there will know that nowadays, 
you can find pretty much anything you can imagine, and then some. The article also mentioned another retail giant, Amazon. Of course, back then, Amazon was only known for selling books, and they hadn't yet expanded to selling everything imaginable. That wouldn't start until the following year. But the article did say that they had just announced plans to offer their stock publicly. Unfortunately, I didn't see the future and buy up stock when it became available. Were you one of the smart ones that did? Friends, thanks for joining me today as we took a look back at March 27, 1997. The day newspapers around the globe reported that 39 people were found dead in a mass suicide. Join me again next Monday for a brand new episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. And I'll tell you about an event from more than 100 years ago that was super important not only for the United States, but for people living all around the world. Talk to you later.